I don't have to tell you that it is a good day. This is the best day of the year. It's Father's Day. <laughs> All right, good. I knew I'd get an amen out of that one. Very good. It is Father's Day as we think about it secularly, but it has a lot of blessings to it in, in a spiritual sense as well. But I'm thankful that you're here. I'm glad that we can be here and share the time together in time of worship and praise of God. We want to think a little bit about this idea, and I sometimes don't pause to make mention of the day in the holiday aspect of it or something like that. And uh, we didn't spend time on Mother's Day this year, and that was a little bit out of out of reach for, I mean, out of the norm for me. Normally on Mother's Day, especially, I want to emphasize that. Father's Day, I might feel a little bit encumbered, but then I'm such a good father, I just might as well go with it as best I can, okay? And, uh, and Jim, I may not be that good a singer and everything. This morning, Jim heard me going down the hallway singing. He said, I used to wish I could sing. He said, now I wish you could sing, you know. <laughs> So I'm feeling good today. I'm really feeling good. That was, I said, that was a good line. I like that one. And of course, somebody asked me one day, said, what'd you do with all the money? And I said, what money? He said, the money your mother gave you for singing lessons. Okay, enough said about that. Let's think about fathers, though. Let's think about fathers, but no, let's think about sons. And when we think about sons, we have to think about fathers because the question of the hour is this one, whose son are you? But let's just kind of interject that, whose child are you? The question stated in Scripture is, whose son are you? And so I write it that way, put it down that way. But the question to you and to me today is really, whose child are we? And I appreciate Kyle using the verse that he did this morning from 1 John 3. What manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. I don't know that we often contemplate how fortunate we are to be children of someone, to have that relationship, to be that connected, whether we're uh, of that age that we think of children or adult children. I don't think my children ever quit being my children, do they? That's just the way it is and all. And as long as there's breath in the old body, I'm still going to be their father. And they're going to hear about it too. But whose son are you? It comes from a great story in 1 Samuel 17, one of those great Bible stories that we share in our Sunday school classes again and again that deals with David and Goliath, and you hear the analogy of that used in a lot of, a lot of veins today. But leading up to that, there is a question. Before David ever kills the giant, there's a question. After he kills the giant, there's the question. 1 Samuel 17, picking up in verse 55, we find King Saul looking at the situation that is going on where no one has been ready to go out and face Goliath the giant. It says, when Saul saw David going out against the Philistine, that's talking about Goliath the giant, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I do not know. So the king said, inquire whose son this young man is. Then as David returned from the slaughter of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? So David answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Now, that's probably not the part of the story that we notice the most. But there's something about this 
There's something about this idea, whose son are you? And David's saying, well, I'm the son of your servant. And the blessing that it was to be his son and to be who he was, and even Saul recognizing that. So I want you to think on that this morning. But let me kind of take you in a little different direction. So I've been, I recognize over the years, a lot of years, I've been blessed to be a part of quite a few funerals over the years. And when I say blessed, it's an honor when somebody says, would you say a few words and so forth. And, and I tried to do that the best of my ability. But I've been blessed to be a part of many funerals through the years as be, being a preacher. And some of them have been pretty interesting. And I've got some good stories I could tell, but this is not a day about stories. But there's something that comes up quite often. Is it get together with perhaps some of the family, if possible, prior to a funeral and say, talk about the things that they would like in this funeral. A common occurrence is that someone will say to me, especially if it's a parent's funeral, they will say, uh, well, this is what dad wanted. Or this is what mom wanted at the funeral. Mom wanted these songs sung. Or dad wanted this poem read. Dad wanted this told at his funeral. And there are a lot of things that come out in those things. And what it is, is there is an effort on the part of those family members. And you may have been among those kind of discussions at times. There are part on, a part of those family members that say, I want to fulfill. I want to fulfill dad's or mom's wishes in this case. I think about one said, Dad always wanted to be buried under the oak tree next to Mom. And then he wanted us to sing No Tears in Heaven. I don't know why that one stuck in my head. There are some that are much funnier than that in the way they approach them, but it's that idea. And generally things have gone as requested or desired by the individual who's passed away, the parent in that case. And I think it is really a matter of honoring the wishes of the person that you truly you truly respected, you truly loved. So what I'm saying is a lot of what we do, besides planning parental funerals outside of that, tells whose children we are. Did you catch that? A lot of the things we do, maybe most of the things that we do, tell whose children we really are. Even John writes about it in one of his epistles. And what a joy he finds in finding his children, the ones that have learned from him, finding his children living in the faith. There is another side to this, though. And I was thinking about an interview that I heard several years ago, an interview with Frank Sinatra Jr., who spoke of being, about being the son of the famous singer and actor Frank Sinatra. He spoke of being thankful for the doors that it opened, for the opportunities that came his way, the blessings that came his way. But he also addressed that there had been a lot of expectations that had been placed upon him, and then when he would go someplace to sing, he would always be compared to his father. And someone would say, well, he's just not as good as his father. You know, I was thinking about an occasion uh, more than 40 years ago when working with a group of young people, I took them to another town to conduct the Sunday evening service. And on the way there, two of the boys that were supposed to preach that evening, one of them just flat, as we left, came up and said, I can't go. I've got to go back home. My dad's mad at me. And so he went back home. The other boy that was to preach one of the lessons said, I just didn't have time to get it done. Like he couldn't have told me earlier. 
And so we're leaving, and I've got one boy with a five-minute sermon, and we're leaving to go to conduct the services in this little town. And I'm thinking, okay, I've got to say something. Well, at the time, I'm a 21-year-old ignoramus. Instead of a 66-year-old ignoramus, I was a 21-year-old ignoramus who'd been in school for a year or two, but didn't have the slightest clue what I was doing as I'm driving along saying, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? What am I going to do? We get to the little town, and we got there. We started into the service, and the boys that were to lead the songs did their job, and the first boy did his little five-minute sermon that lasted almost three, and, and another song was sung, and it was time. Russ, you better get up there and say something. So I got up and I'd made myself a couple of notes on a piece of paper and I talked about those notes for about five minutes. And I thought, what am I going to do? I'm out of stuff. So I went over them again one more time. (laughs) Now, the old preacher in the town, when we finished the service, which was over in about 20 minutes that evening, which that's fine, time doesn't matter, got through, the old preacher got up and he said, I want to thank these young people for coming and I'm glad to get to know Brother Dyer but he's surely not as good a preacher as his father. (laughs) Never did make it up to that level, but I think about Frank Sinatra Jr. and trying to live in the image of his father, and sometimes that can be quite a challenge. And perhaps many of us have found those opportunities to meet someone who knew our relative, knew our fathers or something like that, and judged us according to what they saw in us, according to what they knew of our fathers. I I will think about a preacher, a well-known preacher who was sitting across the table from him and when he realized who I was, said, I didn't know Herschel Dyer had any sons. And I said very plainly, without a smile, he doesn't tell anybody. (laughs) But today our question is this. Whose sons or daughters are we? If you think about the story that is there, you recognize what's going on. If you back up in it, you, you see that Saul and his army are at war. They are up against the Philistines. There's been this giant come out every day with this challenge, day after day after day with the challenge, and no one is ready to go and meet his challenge. You send out your champion, we'll fight, and whoever is the victor, our people will serve the other. It's out there because they don't believe anybody will ever go up, go and take him on. In the midst of this, and while they are there, and the armies are sitting there, and you can, you can picture them across the way from one another, looking at one another, jawing at one another, David is called upon for a mission. The word comes to Jesse, his father, and says, send David from King Saul, from his administration at least, send David. And David is going on a mission for his father. He's taking food and supplies, and that's what they did. Saul requested that David bring supplies from Jesse, and he brought the food, he brought the the goat and all of that, I assume, for me. There's bread and wine and a goat that were loaded on a donkey and taken to the army for the conflict. And that's the way they supported them, and they would send them food, and families would do that again and again. But what it tells me, and I don't know whether you've ever noticed that, is that he knew. Somebody in his ministration, at least, and maybe Saul, knew the name of David. He knew who Jesse was and sent word that it be brought. It became something special. He knew who they were, and it became an opportunity of something special for a young man. This excited and this ambitious young man gets to come and see the war. He gets to go from home, the youngest son with seven older brothers, gets to go to the war and see what's going on there. 
And as he arrives, he gives the food to whom he's supposed to, and then he heads to the front lines looking for some of his family, a couple of his brothers who were there, and he heads there, and he begins to find out what's happening. And he hears about this giant, and he hears the words of the giant. And he spread the word that he was interested, that he was interested in dealing with that giant. Here he is, a young shepherd boy. He's not been in the battles of conflict. His older brothers have. But he's interested in dealing with that, and his older brother tells him, don't be talking that way. Just close your mouth and get back to your little sheep that you left back at home. But David saw a cause that was worth, he believed in his mind, the risk of his life. Is there not a cause, one of the translations says. So he was sent by his father, and he represented his father when he was there. He represented his family, and especially what his father had for him to do. He did what his father sent him to do. And notice the character in all the things that follow after this, after his word is put out there. In dealing with the king and the armor, he goes to the king, and I'll stand up for you. And the king says, here, go try on the armor. I wondered if King Saul was saying, go put on the armor, because you're going to realize you can't go out there and do this thing like you're thinking you can do. Might have been. But he was wise in the way he dealt with the king. He says, I cannot do this. I haven't been tried in this. I haven't been proved in armor like this and doing that kind of thing. But he told the king also, he said, don't let any man's heart faint. He was concerned about the faith of others and their loss of ambition, their loss of desire, their loss of belief in the victory, his concern in the faith of others, and his confidence in what he would do. This is going to be just like the lion and the bear that I've dealt with who tried to steal my sheep, and I killed them, and I'll kill this giant as well. He had confidence in what he was about to do. And he didn't just run at it haphazardly. He went and got the stones with whom, whom he was comfortable. He carried with him the weapon that he knew he could use. David had a confidence. There was planning and approach in what he went to do. And even as he, even as he steps out to the giant, there is that bold statement of honor. He's here to show God. He's here to show God's people. And so he's bold, ambitious, excited, young, impetuous, all those things, but he is absolutely confident. Here he is, the youngest son of the family. And you can imagine how older brothers may have picked on him, how he may have had to prove himself as the years went by. But who was he? I picture him maybe a little bit like, a little bit like Gideon. You remember when the angel confronts Gideon in Judges 6? says, you're going to lead the people. And Gideon said, are you sure you're talking to the right guy? I'm, yes, I'm of the tribe of Manasseh, but I'm of the least of the tribes, and I'm the least son in this family. Do you really know who you're talking to? And it's, yes, it's going to be you. I think David saw that in himself. Maybe it came from his home. Maybe it came from his father. Maybe that was a part of the drive that was given in to him. We don't know exactly what went on that home, in that home. We don't know his father that well. But you can only imagine the kind of man he must have been to raise a son like David. But let's go back to Saul for a moment. And the idea of the question that comes out. For as Saul sees David, he sees nothing but a youth. He saw David, but did he really see him? For when he's confronted by David, Saul considered David far too young to go out and face this kind of warrior in a battle. This is an experienced man, and you're an experienced young man. You can't go face that giant. He may have thought of David in trying on of the armor and all of those things. 
he may have thought, okay, it's just another blowhard, another young man who will talk the talk, but he'll never be able to walk the walk. He didn't say, see in David somebody that was truly ready to walk that line. But when David took to the field, it seems almost like Saul is surprised that he sees David out there at all. But as David took to the field, he looks to his general, for he knows that David means business. There's no turning back now. David's out there. He's confronting that giant. His bold statement is being made, I come to you in the name of the Lord. So this time when Saul saw him, he wondered about him. Abner, whose son is this? Whose son is this youth? The connection is important. The family lines are important. But maybe there's even more than that. It's that idea of we look at this young man who's doing what we wouldn't have even imagined he began to do. Well, where in the world does he come from? Is the idea behind it. Who is his father? Where did he get this? Where did he come from? He's going out there when nobody else will go. Notice even Saul won't go. Yes, he had the, the older brothers who were there in the army, but they were like the others. They just blended into the crowd. They were just other soldiers that weren't ready to take it on, who weren't bold, who weren't saying there was a cause that we can take. They weren't that way, but David was. I think about, I think about Paul's statement, 2 Corinthians 6, come out from among them, verse 17. There comes a time to step out. To not just be part of the crowd. There comes a time to be one who's seen. It comes a time to be recognized for who we are and who we claim to be. It is something about seeing the whole of the person as we see the heritage from which he came. The life that he's drawing upon. And in that, in that time, whether he had or not before, David became his own man, especially in Saul's eyes. For we really don't spend much time with David's family. We don't spend much time with his brother outside of David, David protecting his parents, seeing that they are cared for when Saul is trying to pursue him at a later time. We don't see that much of the significant parental involvement in his life, but we've got to believe it was always there in his heart, in his mind, in his spirit. That's why I think if you carry with me this thought, that's why I think it is no small thing that Jesus is referred to as the son of David. Yes, he was of that line, but it has more significance than just a biological heritage, more than just a biological line, more than just being of the same family. It was about a character. It was about a love of God. It was about a determination. It is no small thing, I think, that Jesus was referred to that right at the beginning of the book of Matthew, son of David. And so let me offer to you, what does this mean to you and me? And I know we're talking about sons here, but as I said in the beginning, it's about children. We are the children of someone. We need to see a reflection of the Father. For we do bear the image of our Father and fathers. Now, some things we can't get away from. Genetics is one of those things, isn't it? Every now and then I look in the mirror and I see an old man looking back and I, I want to say something to my dad in that mirror. <laughs> Only it's not my dad I'm looking at. Genetics is an amazing thing. We do bear the image of our fathers. We do strive even to become more like they were. 
made in their image, as Paul writes about in Colossians 3 and verse 10, developed, becoming more and more in the image of him who made us. But it's not always positive. Somebody might say, say, he or she is just like his or her father. And we like to believe that's good, but it's not always good. Most of the time, probably, but not always. For Jesus said, you're like your father, the devil. Matthew 10. You're like your father, the devil. I guess it comes down to a real spiritual genetics is what we're talking about. Whose father is our father? Whose genetics do we have working in our spirit? We'd like to believe that like the words of the songwriter said, you wear it well. Yes. We want the image of our father to be seen in us. We go back to Genesis 1 and we're reminded we were made in his image made to be in his image and made of his image genesis 1 verse 26 let us make man how in our image not that we physically look so much like god but that the spirit the nature and the eternal within us is made in the image of god you see we were made to to identify God in our lives. We are made to show the works of God in our lives. Jesus said, let your light shine that men might see your good works. And then what's the return? That they might glorify your Father, your Father who is in heaven. You wear it well. For his priorities then must be our priorities and they must be obvious in our lives as we become peacemakers we become like the children of God look at the the main part of Matthew 6 when he talks about our lives and how we exhibit ourselves before him ultimately coming down to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness seek that first find God's place above all in your life for we are made to be examples and ambassadors examples of his love and his grace to us and then be extenuating outreach of that love and grace not only to testify of God but to show whose we are to be more and more like him I guess, to wrap it all up, there is a point. For in the beauty of all this, and probably in a way that, that Saul never would have considered, and perhaps for many years most of us never considered even looking at this, but there is a question that we ought to invest within ourselves, our own thoughts, our own heart, our own spirit, as we ask ourselves, whose son or daughter am I? My friends, there is no greater privilege in life, I think, than to say, I am the child of my father. I am the child of the father. 
You know, I guess there may come points in life, maybe in those teenage years where we are somewhat embarrassed by our parents, our parental heritage. Maybe we even try to hide it sometimes from others. That's usually that immaturity, ignorance, and all of that. But isn't it grand that we can look and say, I have a father, and I am, and I want you to know I am. I want you to see it in me that I am. I want everyone to understand that I am. That's what we say, a child of the Father. This morning we will sing this song that's been selected. Perhaps someone has considered a need in your life to make known this morning. Maybe you need the prayers of the church. Maybe you have considered you need to be baptized and you want to do that right here and right now. We have that opportunity for you. Whatever you need might be this morning, let us encourage you and help you. We're going to sing this song. Let it be one of encouragement and invitation to you. And if you need to come, please do so as we stand together and sing it.